Hello, this is the Bureau of Lost Culture, and I'm Stephen Coates, taking another trip down the byways and forgotten roads of the counterculture in Britain and beyond. Now, if I said to you the name Barney Bubbles, you'd be forgiven for thinking perhaps that we were going to hear about a circus performer or the sort of person who appears at children's parties. But the Barney Bubbles that we're going to talk about today is another one of those lost or forgotten heroes of the British counterculture that we love so much. He was the designer of many album covers, some of which I'm sure you're familiar with if you're an album cover lover. In that world, of course, he is famous in the world of graphic design and in the world of independent press from the 70s. And he's one of those few people perhaps like the band Hawkwind who we heard about previously, who successfully bridged the late 60s, early 70s hippie counterculture into the punk and post-punk era beyond. His life is extraordinary and tragic somewhat, and his mind was certainly magic. And we're going to hear about him from somebody who probably knows his story best. The man who's written the biography of Bubbles and curated several exhibitions about him He's a countercultural hero in himself, though not forgotten quite yet. Uh, so it's a great pleasure and privilege to have as with us the writer, the curator, the commentator on all things counterculture, Mr. Paul Gorman. Hello, Paul. Hi there, how are you? Very good. Welcome, Paul, to the Bureau of Lost Culture. Listen, I'm not going to butcher your bio. It's way too extensive and complicated for that. So why don't you tell us, who is Mr. Paul Gorman? I mean, basically, I'm a writer. You know, uh, that's what I've been. I've been earning my crust from the written words for, uh, it shocks me to say, 42 years. You know, I started at 18 on a trade paper as uh, a trainee, a trainee journalist, you know, going once a week um, to um, uh, this building where, which housed the Times, where we'd have seminars on shorthand and the legal aspects of uh, journalism or learning how to cast off, which is counting the number of words that appear in a column and, you know, all about typography. Well, the kind of nuts and bolts of typography and the printing process. I guess a lot of those processes are now extinct, but I'm also guessing that that's where you really de developed your love of print, paper print and stuff, right? I guess so, yeah. I, I, you know, I come from uh, a literary family in that we're extremely interested in text. Uh, I'm the youngest of six. None of us went into further education, though three of my brothers, I had three brothers, were all librarians. My oldest brother became a quite a notable um, bibliographer and was president of the, he's lived in America for a long time, he was president of the American Library Association. So there's something about words mm. that I think I've inherited or am part of, or print, printed words. Um, and so, you know, um, it was uh, it was in in the blood, as it were, and um, I just really followed that path of learning the kind of professional side of it, all the while accumulating knowledge about the kind of less professional side, whether it was fanzines, or you know, I I first started buying, you know, what would not kiddie comics or whatever, but it, at the fag end of the underground press in 1972 you know I got a copy of Friends magazine and a friend down the road gave me some copies of Oz and so I was kind of inculcated in that alternative 
means of expression, which after all was really rooted in those technological processes, you know, IBM golf ball typewriters, offset litho. Paste up. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. But really cheap and cheerful and effective and impactful ways of communicating mm. words in print. Mm. So how did you go from that, you know, cutting your teeth in that hard boiled commercial world to being, you know, an independent writer and uh, cultural curator, etc. Throughout that, that period, uh, me and my first wife, we kind of lived an alternative existence as well. She was in print production, actually, amazing print production person, manager. But, um, you know, we go to clubs, uh, we'd uh, hang out in shops in the King's Road and Covent Garden and Soho. Um, we had lots of friends who were doing, you know, interesting things. You know, everyone was trying to scuffling away. The 80s weren't as glamorous as they'd been painted out. You know, this was a kind of a tough time. So I was blessed, really, that I had a job throughout that period. But it also funded me in, you know, as I say, accumulating this knowledge about the other side of stuff that I was interested in. Mm. Uh, I was particularly interested in uh, the visual, you, you can be posh about it, and call it the visual identity of music. But really, it was about fashion and street style and the way that that popped when it was, uh, when it coincided with really fantastic music. Uh, whether that's, you know, Peter Tosh and you, Roy, or Elvis Costello and the Attractions, or even Can or something like that, you know, they had, all of these people had really a grasp of visual identity, you know, craft work or whatever, to go with this. Um, explosive music that they were making and simultaneously um i was um you know really diving into the whole lifestyle press of the period starting with the face and then going out from there i'd already as a teen become interested in magazines like Andy warhol's interview and ritz which was the kind of uk counterpart uh, the fanzines as i've mentioned and so this this all kind of snowballed in my head as I was, you know, working this nine to five job. And then uh, it kind of coincided really for the first time professionally, when I got a job as the West Coast Bureau Chief, I was called, basically the LA editor uh, for a, a film trade magazine, Screen International. And so I moved to, we moved to LA and I worked there for a while and that kind of changed me, I think, mm -hmm. that, that experience. I, I had some family there and some friends and, had a great time but it kind of opened me up this is the early 90s music was changing this is post acid house it was um it became um you know uh, something that i thought well there's no going back now i'm writing about film it's film industry i'm always interested in the people behind the scenes so it really turned me on to interview don simpson mm -hmm. rather than i did interview film stars um but i a bit like musicians, they're kind of difficult to interview because they have to, they're selling something. Whereas if you talk to somebody who's making the films, they're, they're kind of often much more interesting and mad and maniacal and uh, they've got a, a really interesting worldview. And so having done that and written about film, I came back to London and started freelancing. Right, so I'm just going back to the subjects of magazines and stuff. I mean, I got interested myself in that whole amazing world of independent press, uh, partly from that exhibition that you curated at Somerset House a few years back, Print Tear It Up. 
Um, I know there's a lot of stuff in there from your archive. Wonderful graphics, wonderful sort of paper ephemera and objects that was that that was a lot of your stuff right we got we got some fantastic loans as well the second issue of blast the second second and last issue of blast the mm. magazine from 1914 1915 so there were there were some key loans in there as well but a lot of it came from my art yeah i mean it really evoked the spirit of the counterculture i thought i mean interesting that you say you know that goes all the way back to the vortices if not further um but paul tell us what do you understand by the word counterculture or the thing, phenomena counterculture? It's difficult. To, well, is, is it difficult? I don't know. I think it's sort of anti-derigueur thinking. Mm. I think it's an alternative way of looking at the world um, and using quite often alternative means of expression to communicate your message. And so in my world, in, in a way my books have and this is all praxis i've only found this out after 20 years of publishing books you kind of look back and go, oh really that's what it's about in my world somebody like barney bubbles who i think we're going to talk about in a while the graphic designer was far more important than the story of pop in the 70s and 80s from the late 60s to the early 80s he was the key figure um or somebody like malcolm mclaren who i've written about he was the key figure in punk me beyond mm. you know i saw lots of punk bands and most of them i saw the lurkers you know and lived mm. i saw <laughs> lots of that that music was not was not good and the presentation was no good either i mean obviously there were some great bands in there but it was people like him so mm. i had this kind of alternative history of popular culture which was running around in my head the thing about the clothes you know i knew bernard lansky made the clothes for Elvis and Elvis wearing those clothes, which was basically African-American high fashion, as it was called, you know, pimp style, really, of the 50s. A skinny white kid with a great voice and charisma wearing those clothes made something else happen. So I knew all of that stuff. John Stephen, in, you know, the, the great gay uh, pioneer in, who basically created Carnaby Street. I was more interested in him than, say, yeah, absolutely. When we talk about counterculture, you know, my take on it is that whenever there's a culture, there's a counterculture, there's something, you know, contrary to it. But for you, um, that's interesting because it's not just about music or the 1950s, 60s and 70s or even the 80s. It's a wider thing. It's about fashion. It's about style. It's about the city. It's about community. It's about press and media. Music was just part of it. I think music was an element rather than mm. the overriding thing, mm. which is why the music press, I'm just rewriting my music press book now, so I'm thinking about this a lot. I think that's why it started to falter seriously in the 80s, because it had misunderstood for a very long time that music was the be-all be, be and end-all. Yeah, and in, of course that's been even more exaggerated in recent years with streaming, which has kind of had the effect of separating the music even further from all those other things. But but let's circle around towards Bubbles, uh, Paul. I mean, it seems to me that you're, you've been championing for years, really. Is it three exhibitions and the book now? I'm working on a third edition now, yeah. Great stuff. I mean, as you mentioned earlier, uh, it's his 80th anniversary coming up. Uh, but despite that, I mean, he does remain in the shadows, you know, outside the worlds of uh, you know, graphic design and album art aficionados. He's one of those people that really has 
you know, most people don't know about, which given the sort of breadth and scope of his work and, you know, the very interesting life that he led and, you know, his tragic end and stuff, it's a shame and it's a bit of a mystery, really. So for anybody listening who doesn't know uh, who Barney Bubbles was and his work and stuff, Paul, why don't you give us um, his bio, tell us all about him. Who was he and where did he come from? He, he was born Colin Fulcher. Um, in Witten, in Middlesex, uh, just quite close to Heathrow, out, out of West London suburb. Um, and he was a brilliant kid. It appeared to come from nowhere, but and if you look into his family background, his father was a precision engineer. And I think that takes a lot of skill, uh, that business. And so I think, you know, he was, he was quite a brilliant kid and uh, was also part of that art school explosion of the late 50s and early 60s, which basically contributed to the counterculture we're talking about. And then, of course, mass culture. And so he went to Twickenham Art School when he was 16 in 1958, and he was there for five years. He majored in paper and card for retail display, which is quite interesting when you think about his elaborate album sleeve designs, which he produced later on. Um, and he was a, a brilliant student, at the same time, he was heavily involved in music. Eel Pie, uh, the Eel Pie Hotel on Eel Pie Island was pretty close. Um, Twickenham Art School used to have their dance, Christmas dances there. And so he made posters. One of his earliest posters uh, for music was for the Rolling Stones, a performance there just before they went stratospheric in 1963. Um, and um, when he left, um, he started working for... Uh, an extremely hard-edged continental-style typographer called Michael Tucker, uh, where he'd learned all about typography, all the stuff that he hadn't learned in the multidisciplinary five years at Twickenham Art School, were then applied, all that stuff he had learned, sorry, were applied to this commercial business of producing everything from liveries to posters for films to, you know, any kind of commission could come in. And one of the people he worked with told me that it was very, um, it's kind of very hip. And so everyone had to wear nice Ivy League button down shirts. You know, it was a kind of unspoken rule that you would adopt this look <laughs> and this style. And and was always not an ampersand, but a cross. So I think he was Michael Tucker, cross and, and associates. Um, so he had a couple of years there. Um, and then when in 1965, when Terence Conran um, launched uh, a design studio to service, he already opened Habitat and he'd had a restaurant before then. But this is really um, the idea of good taste in furnishings and home decorations and homewares. And um, kind of whole lifestyle approach to sort of design things, sort yeah, of bringing, he, bringing, bringing design into the kind of the, the average house sort of thing. Exactly. You know, this was after, you know, post the post-war austerity period where everyone lived with their grandparents' furniture or austerity furniture. Well, most people did. Um, but he was introducing, uh, Conran was championing clean lines, European, you know, um, design aesthetics. Um, and so... Bubble, still then Colin Fulcher, um, became senior graphic designer uh, and oversaw a bunch of campaigns, whether it's for seed packets, there was a restaurateur and um, 
uh, grocer, really, uh, called uh, Justin DeBlanc, who I also interviewed for the book, sadly no, no longer with us, who um, was very, very straight-edged. I mean, I think the young royals were uh, clients of his shop in Knightsbridge. But Colin Fulcher was designing this really great kind of slightly back-to-the-land um, crafty logos and uh, everything for the packaging, for the letterheads, for the in-store displays. And so um, he was really at the top of his game. And later on, he was interviewed only twice, one very short interview uh, in Smash Hits of all places, but the, other, the only other interview, because he was quite shy on retiring and very hard working, he gave for the face. He was, he was pointing out that to be a commercial artist in the mid to late 60s, or probably the mid 60s, was really a hit job. You know, mm. it was a kind of a new thing. Advertising was just coming in. So young advertising guys were suddenly very glamorous, weren't they? You know, right. it wasn't just the photographers that we know about. It was all of those service industries around them. So he had this very hit job and then went to California in 1968 and basically tuned in turned on and dropped out. Yeah, and I mean, to loop back a little bit, you know, you were saying yourself earlier about how important it was for you to kind of cut your teeth in the hard-boiled commercial world, uh, which he did too. And I'm guessing that, you know, he learnt uh, the techniques which were going to come become very important later. He went and learnt his work, work ethic and, you know, very hard-working. I don't know what the British advertising industry was like, but if it was anything like Mad Men, you know, you get this impression it was like very hard-working, hard-partying, probably quite well-paid, quite glamorous quite tough uh, environment and he's got all that as the kind of context as the sort of bedrock for what happens next and then goes to California gets immersed in that west coast counterculture add a drop of acid and boom well, as I understand it rather a lot of us <laughs> he um he was developing he lived in the flat in West Kensington um and he was developing this alter ego while he was mm. still at uh, Comrade Design and so with uh, another ex-art um, uh, student friend and a couple, well, actually a few of them, he set up this thing called A1 Good Guys, G-U-Y-Z. I think everyone was looking to America and, you know, this is very much post-Royal College celebration of, you know, American street culture and neon signs and this kind of quasi-glitzy, quite kitschy way of looking at the world. Um, and so they used to have happenings. Uh, they made films, uh, uh, Alice in Wonderland, for example. They were dressed up in Mad Hatter or whatever and filmed themselves and had screenings. And so just it, it wasn't such a shift by the time he got to California and the West Coast and L.A. and San Francisco because he'd been setting the scene for it. He went to the 14-hour uh, Technicolor Dream, for example. Right. I mean, he fully indulged in a lot of those early... Um, almost pre-psychedelic experiences. Because Comrade Design was off Tottenham Court Road, he and a friend were working late one night and they walked past the Blarney Club and went to UFO and saw right. Pink Floyd and mm -hmm. went back. He started making um, uh, the oil light shows for bands and there was you know, this bubble effect that you, we all know now, it's very familiar. And so adopted this alter ego, Barney Bubbles, for that work, which was outside of the Colin Fulcher straight work. So that was, uh, you know, partly his American experiences and then seeing Pink Floyd at UFO. 
Um, that was some sort of epiphany, was it? I think it was a gradual thing that was always within him. If you look at his art school books, and there's always this other side to him, which is mischievous, playful, um, experimental, uh, thoughtful, all of these things. And so he's been to UFO, been to the 14 hour Technicolor Dream. In 1968, he gives up his job and goes to uh, Los Angeles and then California, uh, then San Francisco, operated a light show at the Avalon Ballroom. He writes on a card back to one of his girlfriends at the time um, and um, really returned a different person. Uh, mm. Some of this is, of course, due to the acid consumption because it was, and this was Owsley acid as well. Um, he had it should be pointed out it, it's it's clear that he suffered from incipient bipolarity undiagnosed for a very very long time uh, i don't think the acid helped in that regard in terms of his mental health because i think he was quite fragile for mm. the whole of his life but what it did do was have this amazing effect on his work you see a shift change gear shift change in his work suddenly it because and it's not in the sort of Beatles, oh, hey, man, it's got this hard edge to it, but it's incredibly colourful. It's really audacious use of graphics, photography, typography, all of those uh, things in his arsenal. And so um, he returns to London and um, inspired by the communes that he'd seen on Haight-Asbury and other places, he opened what he wanted to be was a, a safe haven the artists, designers, musicians uh, in this three-storey building in Portobello Road at number 307, and he called that Teen Burger. Right, so it was much more than the acid, wasn't it? I mean, he's being in America, being in California, being in San Francisco, witnessing all that stuff going off, you know, the, the wave of the American counterculture going west. Hate Ashbury, you know, communal living alternatives being explored, psychedelic graphics, lights, music... The whole thing, and then of course bringing that, coming back to London and having absorbed and immersed himself in all that stuff, and then London itself was kicking off somewhat, wasn't it, right? Well, I think it was kicking off, but only in little, um, mm. you know... Pockets. Little sex, and mm. S-E-C-T-S, and uh, pockets, as you say. I think London was still pretty black and white, uh, and Portobello Road was this very fertile area you know, it obviously been connected to Rackman and Christine Keeler and it was the place where you could score great weed and, you know, listen to great Afro-Caribbean music, which was melding with these new young bands who were emerging from there. And so 307 Portobello Road, he allowed bands like Quintessence and Brinsley Schwartz to rehearse in the basement. He had the ground floor as a design studio. Jonathan Green, who wrote the great uh, Days in the Life, and all dressed up and knew uh, Bubbles quite well, said he was kind of a service industry to them. <laughs> Amazing. I mean, I remember one of my brothers, you know, he was he was an out and out hippie at the roundhouse all the time. He had a friend called Mouse. Mouse had a van. So if you needed anything moving, Mouse would do it. He was a long-haired, hip, barefoot hippie. Bubbles, in the same way, was this incredible bloke that you could go to to get your visuals done. And so mm -hmm. that's really when he starts, he enters music with Teamburger designs, and he designed four or five or six, I think, album covers, which starts him off on this road to, for me, really realizing 
a visual identity for music that without it, you can't listen to the music in the same way. You can't mm. imagine one without the other. For some of the bands from that time, you can't really separate, or I can't separate, the, the actual music from that visual thing about the album cover art. And he was really instrumental in that, wasn't he? You've got, you know, the band records some stuff, some songs, but then you're working with a person like Bubbles who extracts something, some essence or some vibe from the music, from the songs, and makes the album cover... And the album itself then becomes this artifact which is bigger than the music and, and lives on in the memory, uh, or, you know, as, as a thing in itself, which is not just the music, but it's about his artwork, right? And that was a big difference, a big move forward. Yeah, on the most straightforward level, you could see the, what's happening when he's at Comrade Design in the mid-60s and a seed manufacturer comes along and says, can you make us some seed packets? He's doing the same thing. He's communicating um, the consumer, the, the music fan. He's communicating with them in the best way possible to present the music. But there is something else about him which is quite difficult to pin down. He, and I think it's down to those 10 years, five years at art school, five years in commercial design. It's down to that that he engages he understands the tricks by which you engage people who are looking at visual stuff uh, and he, he'll use anything but he's not not scared to be cheesy you know he'll um the first album he designed uh, quintessence he didn't actually do the cover which is uh, a kind of tawdry uh, portrait of an indian god i think but inside there's a booklet and it's got uh, apertures cut into um the the paper and so the when it's a one side, it's a pyramid made out of dots, and then you flick it through. So it's like a flick book. He wasn't <laughs> afraid to use that stuff, but there were these fantastic use of these black and white portraits of the quintessence members with sitars or whatever uh, uh, against that. So he's quite tricksy, but not cheesy. And at the same time as all that's going on, he was really living it, as many people were. That's, you know, he's, he's created this refuge on Portobello Road, which is now some of the most expensive real estate in London, and welcoming people into all sorts of creative endeavours. He sounds like he was quite a noble soul, right? Yeah, I think so. I think he was, you know, a, a proper hippie in that regard. It was about community. And so there were draft dodgers living there. There was John Cowell, who was known as Record John, who's actually Simon Cowell's half-brother, who uh, was a uh, fantastic... He had a fantastic record shop, so he wanted anything... Because these are the days when... You know, you could only get Grateful Dead albums on import or whatever. You know, the, the world wasn't sewn up like it is today. But So Record John was there kind of providing the vibes. You had the bands in the basement, him working away. Um, and um, in 1970, so a year after he um, uh, occupied 307, Next Door Friends magazine, the underground magazine, Friends, which had come out of this uh, attempt at a UK Rolling Stone called Friends of Rolling Stone, but that failed. And so this underground magazine, Friends, set up. And of course, naturally, they went to him to be the art director. Right, and, um, you know, Friends, legendary underground magazine, you know, his designs would have influenced a lot of people then, and they carried on doing so, didn't they, even if he's, you know, he's rather forgotten by the public? Oh, yeah. No, I, I think so. There's, um, it was no problem to, you know, get... Peter Saville to talk about him for an introduction for my book. Malcolm Garrett, the designer, 
who worked with him actually as another fan. But um, Neville Brody, the uh, art director of the face in the 80s, is an obvious example, the way in which he applied sort of post-constructivist typography in new and revealing ways. That really goes back to what Bonnie Bobbles had done uh, five or six years earlier. And now there's a, a, a new generation. Well, Kate Morose is a, a really great uh, designer and they, they say a lot of good things about Barney Bubbles, um, architect Adam Nathaniel Furman, didn't really know about him until my wife showed him. And he works in a very postmodern way, the similar way with objects and buildings uh, that uh, Bubbles did with his work. Yeah, so looping back again, um, you know, he was the art director at Friends. And then he develops this really important relationship with the band Hawkwind. We did an interview with Joe Banks about his new book about Hawkwind and that whole West London scene. And, you know, Hawkwind were the archetypal, the, the essentials West London countercultural band at the time. It's quite a different vibe than Chelsea and in Soho, more radical, more political. And Bubbles and Hawkwind uh, get into this very fertile, creative relationship. But just tell us how that came about. I think uh, literally they, they were kind of the house band of Friends. They were in Friends all the time. And so um, uh, Nick Turner, the saxophonist, was hanging out at Friends and they were introduced and became firm, firm friends. Um, and um, he then uh, pretty soon starts designing record sleeves for them. Um, they had a hit, a surprise hit in 1972, the summer of 1972, with Silver Machine, which earned them a lot of money. This was a band that uh, was a really mixed media event rather than a group, a straightforward group. So they would set up a rhythm. It's kind of akin to Krautrock. Um, and um, they used various sort of psychedelic devices uh, which they'd made themselves. Uh, they had a shifting cast of people. Mm. Uh, the, the, in, in their prime, they had the dancer, Miss Stacia, who was painted by Bubbles. You know, he would design the positions where they stood on stage according to their astrological chart. <laughs> he decorated their equipment. <laughs> Those were the days, right? Those were the days. <laughs> uh, you don't get that with take that. But um, he, um, he also really uh, communed with one of their contributors, well, a couple of their contributors, uh, the poet and writer Robert Calvert, who actually similarly suffered uh, from bipolarity, and um, the writer and author Michael Moorcock. And so I started to go and see Hawkwind when I was about 13, so 1973, uh, and you'd see Stacia dancing, Nick Turner dressed as a frog playing the saxophone, this fantastic day glow uh, equipment behind them, a light show, the pulsating rhythms, 20-minute versions of songs. Like, it's like trance, really. It's like trance, you know, 20 years before trance. Uh, Michael Moorcock intoning his poetry. Robert Calvert dressed in leather chaps, shouting through it. It was a really great thing. It was an amazing... For a young, a young person, it was just... Yeah, I mean, really in some good. ways, there's a sort of parallel between um, what bubbles does next and uh, and with hawkwind because they you know when they were never in fashion but they were never out of fashion and st still aren't and um you know they're completely independent all the way through that and still are right they've done their thing and it's um it's it's kind of all-encompassing it's it's really charming it's really independent it's really do-it-yourself 
that's why lots of people who are punks love them. You know, John Lydon would go and see them. Joel Wobble, who's a pal, we, we were talking about going to see them at the Roundhouse um, uh, quite a lot. They were, they were also ever present. They played a lot. They played benefits, uh, played charity gigs. Um, they were all around. You couldn't miss them. And at the same time, there were other groups who played with them a lot. People I liked, like the Pink Fairies, who were quite rock and you know, quite MC5-ish and leather jacketed. And they had a bit of edge. At that point, I don't really believe music had taken a dive. You know, I don't believe that, that version of events. I think there was a lot of great music around, you know, whether it's Kevin Coyne or Kevin Ayers or Robert Wyatt or any of those people. I love them all and I still love them. But Hawkwind was somewhere in that mix. I mean, another thing about them is that's interesting to me is, is that they were sort of in reaction to the kind of bourgeois complexities and pomposity of the sort of prog bands of the era, um, you know, where the audience was supposed to sort of, you know, admire the musicians from a distance. They were kind of street and quite punk themselves, of course, right? And, you know, you know why use three or two chords when one will do? And a, mo and a ring oscillator, <laughs> you know, a light show, and, you know, you're off. And with this sort of visual identity designed by Bubbles and, uh, you know, this... Is album covers, they're sort of, they are progressive actually and cosmic, but they've got this kind of wonderful geometric sort of quality to them, this sort of Chinese puzzle intersecting planes and stuff, and a bit mathematical. And, and of course, his background in um, that 60s stuff, uh, making things for, you know, shop advertising and seed packets and stuff, it's, it, they've got this wonderful sort of die cuts and folds, uh, and that becomes part of Hawkwind's. Yeah, visual identity. So it's almost like he's a sort of visual member of the band in some way. Yes, exactly. And he had his place there because must point out there was a character, Jonathan Liquid Len and the Lensman. That team put together the light shows, which allowed Bubbles to concentrate on basically a total look at a group. And in marketing terms, it was brilliant. So they were, I don't think the Stones were even doing, you know, uh, John Pash uh, tongue T-shirts at that point or badges. I really don't think so. But with Hawkwind, you could buy the T-shirt, the badge, you know. Um, it was a total identity. He changed their logo several times, quite Teutonic at times, quite sort of Asgardian, mythic, whatever you want to call it, at other times. But... Um, he, he was somebody in control. They said to him, look, you know, do, do what thou will to, uh, f with our visual identity. And so that was, uh, that was an extraordinary thing. And it's a thing that lots of bands didn't pick up on for quite a while. Now, you said earlier that he was quite fragile with his mental health. Even though he's, he's sort of at the heart of that scene, do you know much about his personal life? What was going on for him uh, internally, as it were? Well, he, um, he had a partner, Gianna. They had a son, Artem, uh, in 1973. Um, he bought a place in Ireland. I think he was going through uh, some episodes. By the early to mid-70s, Hawkwind were coming out of that first kind of imperial pomp of that period. Everything... The culture was changing, you know, the mid-70s, actually, having said that, you know, it, well, economically it's quite tough. And I think people with long hair who'd invested a lot in the 60s dream were really feeling it. So he bought a place in Ireland and they moved there, but he couldn't stay there and he left them there. 
um, and uh, Gianna had another partner and went, went on her way with the aunt's, aunt's stepfather. And he returned to London and kind of went into hiding uh, back at the house where he'd been born in Witten. Um, did some work for some people. Let It Rock magazine, he redesigned. Um, he, was, he was working away quietly. And he'd always been this retiring person. We ought to point out, you know, he adopted this pseudonym. More often than not, he didn't sign his artworks. Um, he had money troubles because record companies are pretty ramshackle and, you know, take a long time to pay. And even when they pay, it's not very much. So I think he was in some difficulties, but he had worked with this pub rock band called Chili Willy and the Red Hot Peppers, uh, who were managed by uh, a wonderful character, Andrew Jakeman, otherwise uh, Jake Riviera. And Jake had um, really been inspired by Barney Bubbles. They worked together on these silly sleeves and great artworks, roundels for the stage. This was a way out of the quite heavy atmosphere of Hawkwind into something much more light and cheery. And so when Chili Willie and the Red Hot Peppers spit up, uh, Jake Riviera joined his friends, Dr. Feelgood, on a tour of America. In New Orleans, he was looking through all these little record labels, these little independent record labels, and thought, fuck it, I'm gonna go back and launch my own record label, which he did, Stiff Records, with a friend of his from the pub rock scene, Dave Robinson. And it took him a while. I think it took him six months. So it launched in August 1976. So punk is really beginning to start. Um, first single was really, you know, a hard-edged uh, song, which really chimed with the times. I, I, I remember I was given it by a storeholder in Soho. Fucking hell, this is, this is really it. Um, uh, which was Nick Lowe's Heart of the City. They had a designer, Kevin Sparrow, who'd also worked in the underground press, and he had a kind of cheery, theory look to it, kind of these fat uh, letterings for the Stiff Records logo. Released the Damn singles, the first punk single, um, uh, New Rose. And then eventually, Jake managed to track Barney Bubbles down and said, you've got to come here and be our art director, because he knew how brilliant he could be at conveying the visual identity of the music. And so by the beginning of 1977, I've got a letter uh, Bubbles sent to uh, one of his friends talking about how excited he is mm. to be back in the swim of things. He's cut his hair, he's <laughs> involved in uh, concrete poetry performances, and there's a play that's supposed to happen. I don't know whether it ever happened, but in, um, in the stiff offices, he'd found a community again. There were these wonderful people who work there, some of whom are, are friends now, Suzanne Spiro and uh, Cynthia Lowell and Jake being ever dynamic. Um, so he really found his feet again. And I think it really um, helped him out of that depression that he'd sunk in. Right. And, uh, you know, you can't overstate this shift, you know, from, you know, doing that kind of psychedelic hippie spacey design for Hawkwind and, you know, and, and others. And moving into that, um, you know, post-punk punk and post-punk world of the mid 70s you know for stiff records and it you know complete change of style in some way but still extraordinarily impactful and he sort of shaped the aesthetic of that era 
you know, in some in, in the way that Jamie Reed did, right? And uh, I'm assuming he cut his hair and started uh, d- dressing differently. But I suppose in parallel to what, you know, as we're saying, is that they kind of made the shift. They stayed popular, and but also they were loved by some punks like, as you said, Leiden and uh, Jar Wobble and stuff. And so he bridges the gap, doesn't he? And uh, you know, his stuff for for stiff it's like a he has a second life and it's very strong unusual stuff it's kind of warholian as well the use of silk screens um there, there are a series of posters uh for the five characters who were on the first stiffs tour and he made them six uh four, 60 inches by 40 inches so quite big and they were made to be sold at the gigs on this tour and each of them is screen Nick Lowe, Larry Wallace, Ian Jury, Elvis Costello, Reckless Eric. Each of them is screened in this really Warholian way, which makes them look really heroic. You know, in fact, they're scuffling ex-pub rockers for, for the most part. But there's, you know, he understands how to, and, but there was something heroic about them at the same time. Um, and so he understands how to convey that just as he did with Hawkwind in a way. I mean, Malcolm McLaren was interviewed uh, backstage at the fashion show in 1982, so five years after 1977, the height of punk, by a Japanese uh, TV crew. And they asked him, what is punk? And so he said, what I'm doing now with his partner Vivian Westwood, which was designing these amazing clothes uh, uh, as streetwear, was that he said, what I'm doing now is the same as I was doing then, because punk is an attitude and it's predicated on DIY, doing it for yourself, independence, and with that, anti-corporatism. And so Stiff Records expressed that, and so did Barney Bubbles throughout his life. He very rarely works for the major labels. Mm. Quite often he's gravitating to the independence of the outsiders. McLaren also said, for me, it has to have an aspect of chaos to it to make it really work. And I think that's the same with Bubbles, actually. I think his work is so precise, but I think his mind was incredibly chaotic. And mm. there's something about that energy which comes mm. across in his work. Yeah, you also mentioned, you know, apart from being shy and retiring, um, he's also very modest. I mean, he's, he's, he didn't insist on his name being on the album covers as designer even. I mean, these days, that seems extraordinary. I mean, people sort of sneeze in the studio, they want to credit. and Exactly, you know, it's all selfies, isn't it? But he, um, in that face interview, that he gave, he said, well, the bloke who designs the baked bean tin doesn't sign that. So it goes back to that thing. He wouldn't sign the seed packets, you know, uh, <laughs> when he was at Comrade Design. So that was one justification. Um, the other was that he dodged the tax man for a very, very long time, which was to lead to trouble eventually, which, you know, I think actually could have been solved. But it was, I think his state of mind, had he painted himself into a bit of a corner there. I mean, he was also working with these really supreme artists of the period. So whether it's Ian Jury in his absolute pomp or Elvis Costello, you know, he designed the first six albums and most of the single sleeves. But one of those, Get Happy, which is a really great kind of soul, neo-soul and R&B record, he signed it with his VAT number. <laughs> but he's asking for trouble there. <laughs> yeah, so he's right at the centre of things. He's producing this extraordinary artwork for this new generation of artists who are, you know, cutting edge or right at the centre of things here. Then what happens next? 
Well, um, he follows Jake Riviera. Um, it couldn't really last with Dave Robinson, two such uh, explosive uh, figures. So Jake Riviera went off and joined a label called Radar, a new label that was being set up. And so Bubbles followed him and became art director of that. And that's really where he got into his stride with people like Nick Lowe and Elvis Costello. Um, and thereafter, uh, Riviera set up his own label, F-Beat, uh, which had a deal with one of the majors. but And so um, Bubbles was chafing at the grind of producing record scenes. And Peter Saville talks about it, and anybody who's ever done it will talk about it. It's like, you know, he, you have to design, at that point, there were four inkies, music papers. You, you designed the ads as well for those. It was quite a tough brief, you know, to, to come up with single sleeves, album sleeves, posters, ads. Bubbles was doing all of that, working. Some people just don't know how he did it. He was such a forward adopter that in 1978, uh, he moved into a warehouse uh, in Shoreditch, just around the corner from Old Street. And it was a live workspace, but <laughs> there was a bed and a sofa and a TV. But he was just working all the time. I've seen pictures of it and Brian Griffin, the great photographer. He was a great collaborator. He worked with really great people as well. So Brian Griffin was a really super, he is a really superb photographer uh, and worked with him. But Brian told me that there was a, a, there was a sort of central column which held up the roof, I imagine. And um, there was a list on there of jobs. And, you know, he'd go over and tick one off. He and Jerry would come by. Bubbles had this idea for um, 24 initially 24 album sleeves of different wallpaper samples because <laughs> they were 12 inches. And so, and so um, and Martin, um, smart Mark Cole, uh, who's Ian Jury's uh, wingman, said that they went round there and laid them all out. They had 48 that they were, were going to pick from. And this is sort of midnight, working away, going, well, we'll do this for Israel and these five for the US. Right. So um, he's working very hard. Uh, he's in a he's in a, a relationship uh, with uh, Belinda Syme, another artist, an Australian artist, um, and he starts designing furniture initially for Jake's office at Fbeat. So, but it's typical of him. The desk is in the shape of a trowel, <laughs> held up by a column of books, uh, made in beautiful bird's eye maple by this great uh, furniture maker. A cocktail cabinet. Uh, made in four mi 50s Formica, um, rugs, clocks. You know, he's, uh, he's really chafing at the album sleeve thing because he's finding it too, uh, mm. too restrictive. Where's all that stuff now? Um, I've got a couple of the pieces. Um, and uh, the, he only made about six or seven furniture pieces, and they're still with... Um, those people. He also painted for about a year these uh, kind of abstracts, but very graphic. Uh, less less successful, I think, than his graphics. But he he wanted to kind of step out from this role. But we're in the early '80s now, and things have changed. You know, the um, the punk has been subsumed into new wave, which is really quite commercial, mm -hmm. and post-punk. That's when you see people like Savile emerging, really. Uh, not to replace him, but he really admired Savile. He liked his work, you know, and Savile will tell you that he took a lot from using the odd juxtapositions that Bubbles had had 
you know, when he's representing the visual identity of Joy Division and then you all. Yeah, yeah. Well, Paul, we're moving towards the end of this programme and also the end of Bubble's life, and it's tragic what happens. Um, why don't you tell us about it and how it came about? Well, he was... Um, he had these severe money worries. There are tales of, because he didn't sign his work, there are tales of younger designers taking his work around to record companies saying, I designed this and aren't I brilliant and getting gigs from that. Um, he sunk into a depression, which he found very difficult to get out of. Um, uh, he started having episodes. And as I say, this is 1983, so long before, you know, anything is really understood outside of uh, clinical circles uh, about uh, bipolarity. Um, and so he took his life, uh, took his own life in November 1983, um, cornered by, I think, his mental illness which were expressed in those kind of, you know, the worries over finances and taxes. Um, he spoke to a couple of people before he did it. Um, and then that was it. Uh, and, you know, all of those people around him were incredibly shocked because mm. he would not express this darker side. But if you look at, as I have uh, uh, as I've had to do really in terms of setting out his work. If you look at the last year of his work, it becomes incredibly reductive and there are dark signs there. He was, um, one of his woes, the, uh, his first album sleeve for Elvis Costello uh, was rejected. And it's, uh, it's for Punch the Clock, which came out in 1984, I think. But it's an amazing image, but quite frightening image of an electrified Elvis. Uh, Costello says, you know, God, if I'd have known, it's a really mm. great, anybody else, you know, that would be fine. But it was just, but it was, it was quite a frightening image. So for, I think Punch the Clock is quite a commercial album. It was uh, produced by Langer and Wynne Stanley. So who were big with Dex's Midnight Runners and all that stuff. So I think Costello was trying to place himself at the commercial cutting edge and sell a few records, you know, after all. So um, the signs were there, but as so often with these people, you know, those closest to you don't really see what's about to happen. Interestingly, in terms of the history of design, six weeks later, the first Apple Mac is introduced. Mm. And mm. so all of his work had been hand rendered. He'd never worked with computers. By the way, he directed 10 or 15 videos, including the ghost town for the specials we should talk about. Um, so suddenly the end of 83 when he dies beginning of 84 is the beginning of the digital age and cds are taking off you know the framework has been shrunk from 12 inches or if he wants to fold it out to 36 inches <laughs> down to what is it six inches a uh, cd you know pretty yeah. unsatisfactory you know uh way of conveying the musical musical identity so it's it's interesting he his timing was fantastic Sort of very sad um, timing, wasn't it? But we're not even a chance to get into the videos and stuff. But you know, he did he did all sorts of stuff, didn't he? I mean, I, I you posted something fairly recently about that amazing tarot deck he did for Hot Wind in IT. Quite often he would use that. We talked about earlier about his ways of engaging people. So he designed a hawk in the shape of a, a set of tarot cards, to which he gave properties, which appeared on a double page spread 
in IT, the underground newspaper. At the same time, you know, a few years later, he designed a program for injury and the blockheads, which had cut out symbols and you could turn it into a hat you could wear. <laughs> um, there's uh, for Chili Willie and the Red Hot Peppers, there's a color in and cut out bow tie <laughs> insert. So, you know, he was constantly looking at ways to kind of goose you as you went through uh, record playing. And uh, the music videos, what are the highlights of the videos? Well, they're, they're extraordinary. I mean, Ghost Town being the embrification of what that song was about, which was urban misery uh, and economic decline. He captures it so well. I mean, I've shown it to people who work in the built environment, and they're just amazed at how beautifully he captures that kind of urban desolation with just one camera. You know, they're all low-budget shoots. There's a great one for Funboy 3, Lunatics Have Taken Over the Asylum, which is influenced by Kenneth Anger, which uses those kind of colour washes. It's kind of homoerotic. Um, there's, there's several of them. Um, there's all the... 12 or 15 he made there's not a there's not a bad one yeah amazing i mean he did so much uh stuff i mean he's you know his mind it seems to me he's one of those people who's whose mind's this kind of crazy cornucopia like a magic place um you know like many people who've got you know creative busy minds you sort of get the feeling that he was fending off the demons by you know this relentless work and relentless producing stuff um, but he lives on i mean you, you know as i said earlier you've been a champion of him you've kept him in the spotlight to an extent you've kept his sort of legacy alive and um, making sure that people know about him right what's great about that actually uh Stephen is that it's kind of taken on a life of its own now and <laughs> the the people I love most turning on to Bonnie Bubbles uh young Americans young American designers or design students because they don't come at the music like we do. I, I think it's probably going now. They don't care whether it's Hawkwind or Ian Jury or Psychedelic Furs, or, you know, they're not aligned to it. They see the design for what it is. And so, as I say, there are now lots of blogs written about him and, you know, occasionally they'll cite me and that's great. But, you know, they, they've kind of taken him on board as part of the canon, which is really the point of the job. Great. Great. So people can find out more about Barney Bubbles from your book, Reasons to be Cheerful, coming out in a new edition soon. And what about you? Where can they find out more about Paul Gorman? PaulGormanIs.com is my blog, which I haven't updated very much, but you can find me on Instagram. I put a lot of stuff up there. Um, and uh, the next edition of uh, Reasons to be Cheerful, the Barney Bubbles book, will be out next year. And I'm putting together with the publisher, uh, this is a major publisher I've worked with before, uh, a box of goodies. So we're going to be reproducing some of those geodesic domes that you can build yourself as or silver pyramids. So um, we're looking forward to that. Yeah, I'm looking forward to that. Put me down for one of those. Uh, so, Paul, thank you. That was a wonderful whirlwind trip through the mind and life and magic light of Barney Bubbles. I should also mention that your recent biography of Malcolm McLaren has been getting rave reviews. Um, so that's it. I think we should get you back uh, to talk about some more countercultural stuff. Love to, love to. Anytime, Steve. Thanks, Paul. All right, man. So there we have it. The wonderful world of Barney Bubbles with Mr. Paul Gorman. I hope you enjoyed it. And I hope you enjoyed all these Bureau of Lost Culture programmes. You can check us out more at bureauoflostculture.com. You can check out Paul, as he said. I'll put his links in the show notes. And see you soon, hear you soon, for more tales from the underground. Bye-bye.